0: Welcome to this special live recording of the Seneca Podcast, coming to you today from Sup China's Next China Conference in Manhattan. Hello, New York! <laughs> All right, I'm Kaiser Guo joined by the former ambassador to Ukraine, Jeremy Bad News Goldcorn, just back from his testimony at the impeachment hearings on Capitol Hill. Jeremy, thank you for your great nonpartisan service, and um, would you greet the people, please? (laughs) These are getting more
1: ridiculous each time, Kaiser. Hello, people. I'm feeling very guilty. This is a carbon crime I have before me. Oh, no. We're in the the city where you could make whiskey out of the tap water, it's so fine, and we're drinking water from Norway. Anyway.
0: That's really... Greta would not approve. <laughs> no, indeed. Uh, Jeremy is, of course, editor-in-chief of SubChina, which has been powering our podcast now for three and a half wonderful years. Thank you all for being here to show your support for what SubChina and what Seneca have been doing for all these years. So thanks very much. Give yourselves a hand. So today we
1: are delighted to be joined by Yang Chang, who is one of the real rising stars writing in English today about chi- uh, China and science. Um, We are incredibly proud. Uh, I think as an editor, it's my proudest achievement to have nabbed her as a regular columnist. And (laughs) she writes a column for us every month, which I think is one of the things we do that I is an absolute must read. Um, Yang Yang, as mentioned, is a uh, particle physicist, a postdoctoral research associate uh, at Cornell University, but she is also an essayist, as I mentioned, and she has written very poignantly about her experiences as a Chinese-born scientist working in the United States and her perspectives and reflections on the country of her birth. Yang Yang, welcome to Seneca.
2: The honor is all mine. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you have written uh, about this for us But for, the list, uh, for our listeners who haven't actually read it And if you haven't, please uh, go and read it right after this It's a piece called Thicker Than Blood um, And it talks about where you were originally from uh, What you did when you first moved to the US And what the transition was like But just before you answer that I want to know what does a particle physicist do every day? <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, we look at particles uh, well not quite um, so particle physics is one of the most fundamental branches of basic science so we look at the most basic components of nature and their interactions and I, uh, for the past 10 years and counting I've been working on the Large Hadron Collider located at the Swiss-French border but I've been based in the US because the collaborations have dozens of member states, hundreds of institutions, and thousands of collaborators on one experiment. And because uh, the experiment itself is based in Europe, and a lot of my colleagues are, so my day usually starts at, um, well, it ends and starts at 3 a.m. when I send the last batch of emails to my colleagues in Europe. I go to sleep, and when I wake up, they have responded, so I feel I've made progress in my sleep. And... um, Uh, Sometimes we have morning meetings and this is to accommodate uh, people in different time zones. And um, when I'm sitting in front of the computer and doing work itself, I, I write code. And whether that's for uh, simulating a piece of particle detector, because I do a lot of upgrade work for particle detectors, or it is uh, looking at collision data or simulation data to see if nature has any surprises for us. And as a postdoctoral researcher, I also work with a lot of students. So I supervise students from anywhere from uh, their PhD thesis work to. Uh, freshman undergraduates, and I think about topics that are meaningful for them, and and we work together, and so this uh, usually stretches into any time into the day, Uh, and I'm a very bad example that I say, do as I say, don't do as I do, but I do sometimes have meetings with my students after midnight.
1: Wow. (laughs) I think I'm glad I'm not one of your students. (laughs) Would you like to answer the first part of the question, which was, um, can you
0: talk a little bit about your piece, Thicker Than Blood? about your experiences first coming to the United States?
2: Which one would you like me to ask? Your for experiences first. first. Uh, my experience first coming to the United States? Yeah,
0: which is you know, talked about in that essay, isn't it? Yeah.
2: Um, somewhat tangentially. So um, I came to the U.S. Uh, in August of 2009 for my Ph.D. at University of Chicago. And I think this is, uh, this is interesting. I wrote, uh, so I'll answer these two ten, um, together. So uh, the piece, Thicker Than Blood... As the title suggests, it's a piece about menstruation, and uh, I wrote that topic because I was having this conversation with my colleagues at um, in physics here earlier this year. This was my March column, and uh, we were talking about um, if we invite uh, women speakers and if we schedule conferences, and we are not taking enough consideration of 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 women's needs and as well as like childcare, et cetera. And so that's where uh, I I brought up the topic of menstruation. And uh, my dear uh, white American male colleagues, bless their heart, were very uncomfortable and it was something that they've never thought about in their lives. And so I just told them that as long as there are women still dying in menstrual huts, there are girls who are dropping out of school when they get their period because they don't have enough care as long as uh, Vi- uh, gender-based violence is still an epidemic and rape is still a weapon of war. I'm going to write 3,000 words on menstruation as a declaration to the patriarchy. And, <laughs> and so um, that's where it came from. But it was written in the context of uh, three generations of women in my family, or rather four ge- four generations, my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my mother, and I, and how we are bound by by blood, and how we um, grew up in very different times in Chinese history, facing different um, problems, and towards the end, it's about my physics career. So I've been very open in talking about this, that my, uh, my career in physics has not been encouraged by my immediate family, and um, I'm raised. Uh, I was raised by a single mother, and in particular, my mother. Um, in my entire career, I think now a little bit less, but my entire PhD, she was waiting for me to drop out, go back to China, and be a high school English teacher. And so, um, so, so I wrote about in that context of how like a strong, ambitious, capable woman still internalized these uh, gender-based biases. And um, and I've uh, written about this tangentially to some extent. So I'm. Um, I don't deny this, that my mother and I, we have a deep bond, but we also have a very complex relationship. And that factors into my experience when I arrived in the U.S. When I, um, I remember when I f- stepped off the plane at O'Hare and I messaged my folks back home, was like, Chicago felt like home immediately. It was, it was the first place I've ever lived that I felt a sense of belonging and a sense of security. And, and I say that people say, oh, you lived, I already lived 19 years in China, but um, it took an ocean and two borders to um, give myself that sense of um, of liberation. And um, and and this is something I reflect on a lot because I am deeply grateful to this country, meaning United States, for the life and career I've been able to have here. But um, I think gratitude itself does not absolve America of. Um, of its own ills, and I think one thing that is particularly tricky but also important for first generation immigrants is to think about how, when we are trying to have Amer- um, be accepted by America, not also accept america 's biases and prejudices as a part of this integration process
0: very well said uh, borders national borders are something that come up again and again in your in your writing, your essays. Uh, have a recurrent theme in them about sort of the tensions between a science that you dream of that is sort of unbounded and cosmopolitan, essentially, yeah, an international, a transnational endeavor, and on the other hand, uh, of the realities of a science that often is too much bounded by national borders. And your efforts to navigate this tension between these two things is one of the things that I think gives your essays uh, a lot of their power and uh, the reason why they're so very compelling. Uh, one of the essays that you wrote uh, talked about a Pakistani-born, uh, uh, I'd actually probably born before a partition, so probably born in a part of India then that is now part of Pakistan, uh, a gentleman by the name of Muhammad Abdus Salam. And in that essay, interestingly, you, you sort of candidly admit that when he was being considered for the Nobel, he was up against ch- Chinese scientists, and you did take sort of a nationalist side in it. Is it... Okay, is it is it necessarily some you know, morally problematic to feel pride in the accomplishments of quote-unquote Chinese science and, and if so, what is problematic about those feelings?
2: Um, <laughs> this is a big question. So I'll give this a little bit of context. So um, the person Kaiser was mentioning was um, uh, Professor Abdul Salam, who uh, was born in British India in 1926, I believe. And then um, so he was a young man actually studying Cambridge when partition happened, and he was from the, the Pakistani part of Punjab. And um, he was the first uh, Pakistani and the first Muslim scientist to win a Nobel Prize in physics. And his field was was uh, theoretical particle physics. And uh, there is a beautiful documentary, you can find it on Netflix, called Salam, the first, and then it's five asterisks. A Nobel laureate and the five asterisks stood for a Muslim because Salam was Ahmadi, uh, which is a Muslim sect that is deemed non Muslim by Pakistani constitution. And so, um, Abdul Salam won, uh, he was a, a theoretical particle physicist. And in the movie, in the documentary, it mentioned this episode where uh, it was saying that Salam could have won the Nobel much earlier. And this Nobel was won by Yang Zhenning and Li Zhengdao, uh, T.D. Li and Chen Ning Yang, who were the first two Chinese uh, scientists who were working in the U.S. who won the Nobel. And I think uh, I wrote about that detail in the movie because it was indeed true that Yang and Lee's work on that specific piece of theoretical particle physics predated Salam's, and it was according to Salam's own account. However, I did put a bit more attention on this with why was I... Paying attention to that, why was I hanging h- up on it? Because had it been just like three white men, I would just thought this is just academia, a- ac- academy palace intrigue. And so I think there is a certain um, affinity I feel to Yang and Lee because they are Chinese and. And to this, but I think I was also mostly trying to be factual. But then coming to your broader question about science and nationalism. So it's indeed true that a lot of my writings is on the tension between science and the state. So mention I'm a particle physicist. Nature, it doesn't have any political ideology. But science as a human endeavor, and in particular in the current day as a primarily government-funded human endeavor, is inherently political. And so there is an inherent contradiction between science's cosmopolitan ideal and a scientist's uh, obligation to the state, including the reliance on the state for support of their work. And so I think um, if I may extend on this a little bit, a lot of these discussions we talk about between U.S. and China, including some of the earlier panels today on brain drains or Tech wars and um, these discussions are necessary from, especially from a national policy standpoint. But a lot of these discussions are conditioned on these three premises: first, science can be in ownership of and in service to a state; second, science is an inherent force for good; and third, scientists can claim to be apolitical, or at least their work is apolitical. And none of these three premises are valid. So I think um, a lot of my own thinking and my existing writing, which I hope to continue writing about, is to explore this relationship between science and the state, how the state has supported science, and how science has, in turn, been appropriated for state control and state power.
1: Yang uh, Yang, let's uh, talk a little bit about the, the two scientists, scientists you just mentioned, mm-hmm. Yang and Lee. Can you tell us, because they feature in quite a lot of your writing, they're, they're obviously, they resonate with a lot of the things you think about, their, their life stories. Could you tell us a, a potted biography of each and where they ended up?
2: Um, absolutely. So, um Yang Zhenning, actually, so I mentioned the two of them quite a bit, also because I feel a certain degree of personal connection, which I'll explain why. So um, I was born in Anhui, Hefei, and which was also Yang Zhenning's hometown. And I say that Yang and I went to the same high school, but to emphasize, not at the same time. And um, both <laughs> um, both Yang and Li, um, they well, they they grew up during uh, wartime. Um, China, and then they both went to the University of Chicago for their PhD, which was where I received my PhD in physics as well, and they are theoretical particle physicists. I am an experimental particle phys- physicist, so they've contributed significantly to the theoretical foundation of my discipline. And their portraits hand prominently in the hallway at the physics department. So there is indeed a, a sense of, of personal connection. And um, so the two of them were the, the first two chinese uh, Chinese-born Nobel laureates, and they won the Nobel Prize for this specific uh, piece of, of theory that was experimentally proven by uh, a Chinese-American woman scientist, Wu Jianxiong. Um, and as well as um, by Leon Lederman, two experiments. And um, it was about the, the handedness of the universe. So basically, if you uh, look at the universe, and if you look at the universe's reflection in a mirror, its reflection in the mirror is uh, different from what one would have expected. So had the par-
0: parity violation. Parity right?
2: violation, exactly. So the symmetry is broken at that level.
0: It's fascinating. There's another gentleman uh, who has an affiliation, who's also uh, a, a very prominent Chinese scientist, a late prominent scientist, who also uh, has his origins in Hefei at uh, the, the same university where you did your undergraduate degree. I, I keep wondering, I, I was not too long ago, I recommended an essay of yours as my recommendation at the end of the show. We do that every week. And uh, the, the, the gentleman I was talking to uh, noted that there are so many people uh, who are themselves theoretical physicists or, or particle physicists, people who study physics, who are drawn ultimately to politics for some reason. What is it for you that makes you so interested in the political? It's like, Fan Li is of course what I was talking about, but you look at Andrei Sakharov, uh, you look at um, many other uh, uh, quite prominent scientists and, and you find that this is true of them as well. Was it the legacy of the May 4th movement for you, science and democracy? Was it j- people like Fan Li or or Andrei Sakharov? Uh, where's the connection for you between politics and, and science?
2: Yes, and so first of all, I should say that I'm extremely humbled that you recommended my essay uh, for uh, a recent episode of Seneca. Um, so um, we're
1: your fan club you understand we really line. are
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um but but so actually so, uh, so that was the episode with, uh, with, with Mr. Scott Kennedy and uh, on philanthropy in China which is an episode I also highly recommend um, <laughs> okay enough
1: of this uh,
2: <laughs> Um, but, but actually, so I noted in, in the end when, when, um, when, when this was brought up. And this is actually interesting because people asked me this question a lot. was just like, oh, J Sakharov, Fang Liji, and now me, like I n- would never put myself in that lineage. And it's just like an incredibly humbling Question to be presented with, but I actually want to push back on that notion because, like uh, Andre Sakharov and Fang Lizhi, they were um, one from the former Soviet Union, one from China, of a different time when um, the country, w- their home countries, were closed. Off to to the rest of the world to a, to the most extent, and they themselves, especially Andrei Sakharov as a as a nuclear physicist, and Fang Lizhi as a, a initially worked on the nuclear program and then was outed because of the anti-rightist campaigns and was related uh, an astrophysicist, um, fundamental science and physics that uh, were some of the few places in their countries where they had interactions with the outside world. So that was a specific condition um, of a specific time in specific countries. And also um, for both the um, Sakharov and Fang Liji as individuals, they do credit their work as astrophysicists, as particle physicists, the cosmopolitan ideal of their research, the universal principles um, of the cosmos, that that is an inspiration for their worldview. However, what is very important to think about is we keep mentioning these few names. There are hundreds, the tens of thousands, or probably more scientists, right? Most scientists who were working in authoritarian regimes did not become dissidents. So I think it's also important to to think to not take that notion that somehow because one works in fundamental science, because one studies these universal cosmic principles, one is somehow um, automatically more moral, more tolerant. And that is actually absolutely not the case. And uh, finally, coming to myself, this is actually interesting because when I was growing up in China as a young child, I was interested in a lot of things both politics and the natural world. And I've um, written and spoken about this as well, that I always said, had I grown up in a free country, I probably wouldn't have become a scientist. Not because I wasn't intrigued by the mysteries of nature, but had so many different interests. But there were these career paths that I felt my country had denied me. I couldn't become a politician without free elections. Couldn't become a journalist without freedom of the press. I couldn't, um, so I I thought I would uh, study Fundamental science, because I was one of the few disciplines without financial uh, resources that I could pursue without compromise. And I became a particle physicist, in particular as a collider particle physicist. It's partly I'm intrigued by the end of our research, the, the, the most fundamental questions about the origins and evolutions of our universe, but also by the means of it. As I mentioned, we work in large international collaborations with dozens of countries and hundreds of institutions. So there is a, cer- a degree of uh, international diplomacy and and, and international di- uh, politics and dynamics in it as well. And I find that absolutely fascinating.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, We've we, we mentioned Sakharov and Fang uh, um mm-hmm. You know, your your writing is quite political and often quite critical of China. Um, Are you ever accused of being anti-China? Has your writing, particularly for us, since it's been published monthly, and a fair bit of it is extremely critical of your country of your birth, has that had any effects on your career, your friendships, uh, the way you look at the world, the way other people look at you?
2: Mm, This is an um, interesting question. (laughs) <laughs> um, um, and it has so many different components in it, right? First, have I ever been accused of anti-China? Yes, um, and I do not pay that much attention to uh, to internet trolls. I am aware of of, uh, of some of these things happening. Um, and, and since we're we talking about this, it's, it's actually interesting because uh, when I first started writing people because of their prejudices and think, uh, because I'm a scientist and I write about policy and without like my profile pictures or anything, they just assume I'm a guy. And, and the kind of... Um, um, criticism I get are, are usually, uh, you're, you're anti-China, you're a spy or you're stupid. But once it became better known that I'm a woman, and, um, uh, the, the attacks takes on a, an, a, a particular gendered flavor. And, and I think that is, that is an interesting context and things, we are, we are talking about this. I, I might mention that there are two types of attacks I get, which are very, uh, well, one is saying I'm ugly, which is um, fine. Um, <laughs> not very relevant to what I write. And um, uh, But there are two types. One is saying that um, I I write such anti-Chinese uh, things because I must be f***ed by white d- and the second type is saying that i should be f- back to my senses by chinese d- and and so i think this is um this is this is interesting and, and, um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's one word you could use. <laughs> right? And,
2: and I think, um, how, how, how right? Um, uh, I think one of the scholars, like Leta Hong with her books, Leftover Women and between Big Brother, like, um, as an example, right? There is this connection between authoritarianism, nationalism, and it has a patriarchal sense to it why i mentioned earlier that rape is a weapon of war and women's bodies take on this connotation of borders as kaiser mentioned why i think about borders a lot as a woman who has crossed oceans and borders i carry a piece of that border within me and that is why this kind of online rhetoric is potent and and so so that is um that that is one element to it has it affected my career um i i, I would leave that to um because what i do in terms of uh, outside of physics research, what I write, I, I see that as part of my civic obligation, mm. and it's not part of some career calculations. And and I leave it to the people above my pay grade who would be making decisions on my career, uh, on their moral judgment and their conscience. And um, Has it affected friendships? This is an interesting question. Um, I think I have friends uh, from China from uh, a long time ago and um, I think some, some of this, there ha- there are tensions to this. I think if the people are, are reasonable, we can disagree and we can still um, like each other as friends. Um, sometimes it becomes um, difficult to have certain types of conversations because my views are so well known and Uh, there is a degree of risk, and I'm also uh, conscious of this. But I do think, um, even if sometimes things are not being said openly in an authoritarian um, context, um, people still have their own moral compass whether or not their views are being explicitly expressed. And I also place that on my friends.
0: Jeremy, we have to be careful in the future about asking her questions because she will answer every part of a multi-part question. Yeah. This is something I've never encountered before. They'll usually just answer the easiest part, but... but uh Yeah. So I I want to ask you a question also about crossing borders. Uh, It's another border that you've crossed. I'm a big fan of an essay that was written, well, it was a lecture first delivered in 1959 by C.P. Snow. Uh, It's called The Two Two Cultures. I'm often quite chastened as somebody who studied the social sciences and humanities, uh, how easy it seems to be for people from the natural sciences or from engineering to acquire enough knowledge of politics or of history to be pretty conversant in what we work on. Whereas... It's rare for me as a social scientist or as a humanities person to encounter somebody from our field who knows a damn thing about real science. It's, it's very embarrassing. Uh, the two cultures is, is about that. You're somebody who's now crossed over and you're writing, uh, with, uh, real flair about history and about politics. But there's another, uh, sort of intrusion of crossing the borders of, of, if you look at China, you, you, and this is something that I worked on that our earlier guest today, uh, Chung Li from the Brookings Institution worked on when he was a graduate student. Technocracy. Uh, you've, you see a lot of people, uh, in China, especially in some other East Asian countries, who come from, who have four-year degrees in the natural sciences or in engineering, uh, who are involved in politics, who are involved in government. Do you see this as at all problematic? Uh, do you see them taking the mentality of the natural sciences into the realm of, of uh, the governing of people uh, and making mistakes because of it? Is it a problem for you or is it something that we should be doing more of ourselves?
2: This is a great question. And will and actually, um, so since you mentioned C.P. Snow's uh, two cultures, i um I've read that essay and I, I have my own reservations of it, and I think it was uh, diagnosing a certain problem from a specific skewed worldview and how the humanities and natural sciences became so uh, disconnected was partly also driven by, um, by, by, by capitalism, by elitism, by, by different social societal forces and and it was um, the idea that they are separate um, is is somehow it's also an elitist and um privileged worldview how like C P. Snow was a white man and if you think about um in from like traditional early imperial times in China, when people think about how the cosmos and the state and the body are connected and reflect each other, so I don't I don't see that as a fundamental thing that these are separate. Hmm. And then coming to your part about uh, te- uh, techno uh, technocracy te- yeah. technocracy, and um, so I I think this is. I actually put it this way. I think it's less a problem of applying uh, natural sciences or science and engineering to policy than it reflects the inherent biases in science and and technology itself. So one example I would give is the one-child policy. I myself am a a product of it. And it was first came up, uh, the idea came up in... In the late '70s and early, um, late '70s, by Chinese missile scientists who were all men who a- earned their prestige in China because of their work on the nuclear space programs, and and they just thought, oh, we can just uh, compute this, and then women's bodies are just like machines that can be turned on and off. And of course, a generation later, we see this huge demographics problem that it still doesn't have um particular solutions, and it's creating a lot of um, other ripple effects as well. And and this is uh, is this a problem? of applying science to um, reproductive care. it It is, uh, because it shouldn't be done. But it also reflects uh, the biases in, in science as well. Um, that uh, the missile, if you think about weapon scientists, um, there is an inherently gendered and racialized um, biases in their work. And so I think I myself, as a young Chinese woman who works in still a male-dominated and white male-dominated world, I walk through these fault lines a lot in my own career. And, and it's also what motivates me to write, um, to bring this perspective, to shed light on some of these inherent structural biases.
1: Yeah, and this morning our Mm. keynote, David Ho, spoke uh, very eloquently and perhaps more importantly, very precisely about uh, something that I've talked to you about before that's going on in this country, which is the targeting of uh, Chinese, ethnically Chinese scientists. Um, But I'm interested to um, uh, talk to you about your comments at that time, because you gave me the sense that you haven't had any problems in your own career in the United States? Is that, is that still the case? Or are you starting to feel that there is some kind of a chill in the air for ethnically Chinese scientists
2: in America? I, I am actually asked this question a lot. And um, I don't want to dim- dismiss anybody's uh, individual experiences. But I also think this is... There is a silver lining to this, that this is a moment of reckoning for the scientific community and, and for people in the policy world. And uh, sometimes I'm disappointed in the way these discussions are being framed rather narrowly and and, and nationalistically that misses some of these uh more important or deeper questions that should be asked. So in my own career, it's because, well, I work in fundamental sciences and work in a large international collaboration. So on a technical side, um, there is uh, the, the agents, on the agency funding side, there is international agreement. So there is some shield to that. Um, I, I, I shouldn't deny that uh, there are, there are tensions. And I know that some of my colleagues also feel it. I also think as I myself, I, I think these tensions are not inherently uh, separate from parts of my identity, like being a woman and being a Chinese person, being an immigrant. And then I should broaden this up, since I mentioned we work in a large international collaboration. And for example, after the Muslim ban, my colleagues from Muslim-majority countries like Iran or Pakistan are more directly impacted, and, and they still can't... like see their family or they, they can't they, they can attend their graduation or even their weddings, et cetera. And, and so so I think when we have this, uh, this discussion, we shouldn't lump everything together and think, oh, this is a moment where Chinese scientists in the US are feeling um, this particular chill. We should really break this problem up and look at each separate parts of it and how that separate part fits into a bigger picture whether it's xenophobia whether it's about immigration whether it's about this inherent tension between science and the state that i mentioned and there is also things that we should um as as a chinese scientist should reflect on in terms of inter um uh like solidarity with scientists from different backgrounds and i think In reflecting on this issue, I think a lot of these are not being discussed. And what is a scientist's social responsibilities in terms of working with or for the Chinese state? What are the ethical implications of that? That should also be part of this discussion.
0: Yangyang, there are about 15 more questions that we have on our list that we would love to to get to. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm being told that our time is up, which is really unfortunate. But we'll save them for the next time we have you on the show.
2: Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Absolutely, no, Uh, it has been such a pleasure to finally get you on uh, And so great that your first appearance could be with us in front of a crowd uh, for a live program Let's move on very quickly now to recommendations. So, uh, Jeremy, let's, let's try to do these quickly. What do you have for us, Jeremy?
1: Be super quick. It's a new podcast called You Can Learn Chinese done by a, an old mate of ours in Shanghai, John Pasden. If yeah, you're yeah. learning Chinese, it's a fun podcast to listen to. John Pasden
0: has consistently done good things.
1: And he's the one, one of those very few people. Him and Roberta Lipson are the two people I know in my China circles who are still happy. Yeah. Everyone else is clinically depressed. No, not everyone. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, but it's all the Zoloft.
0: No Zoloft. All right. Yang Yang, what do you have?
2: Um, I recommend one author and one film. So I don't want to say favorite authors because I don't think affection could be quantified. But one author that...
0: <laughs> she had to just get that in there, right?
2: <laughs> uh, one Unless you forget I... she's
0: a scientist. <laughs>
2: Uh, one author that I think about the most uh, in, in my own writing is James Baldwin, yeah. and he uh, he was an African American writer, and, and he was a, a gay American, and he wrote about America and immigration, primarily from Paris. So there is, and and he writes about a, a writer's moral responsibilities to shatter these um, stru- uh, structural biases, to shatter these self delusions, and so and I recommend his essays, as well as his uh, novels. And then the one film is a film that came out in 2015 called 10 Years About Hong Kong. And, and I think it, it paints a dystopian future of Hong Kong in 2025. It was a beautiful piece of cinema, but it also reflects uh, some o- or illuminates some of these tensions that underlines the protests that are going on in the city right now.
0: I am going to recommend a novel as well, or a writer, um, and in one particular novel by hers. I finally getting around to reading George Eliot's, uh, Middle March, which is just mind blowing. It's just the, 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 depth with which she understands Miss Marianne Evans is George Eliot's real name. Uh, she wrote under a male pen name because of, you know, this was the times, but, uh, phenomenal understanding of human psychology like i do not think that she is surpassed i've not seen this ever i mean it's 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 i cannot put this book down it's just great middle march okay well thank you all, i mean th- thank you all for 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 coming thank you for supporting our conference today at uh, the sub china next china conference thank you all for sticking around until the very end thank you so much Yang, Yang for for having us for for, for joining us here uh, and uh, we will see you next time